This is part 13 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. and the Rider. Part 13, The Crime Wave. Pretty Ricky's truck rumbled towards Albury and Jackie turned to Peter Quinnell life and asked loudly if he was all right. Peter blinked fearfully at the idea that his dark thoughts directed at Jackie had somehow psychically betrayed him. Yes, and he mumbled, I'd like you to know that if Leanne is real, you have my full support. She looked at him blankly, It struck Peter again as inadequate for someone who claimed to be telling the truth about being in a gay relationship with a lesbian woman. Peter was aware of the discrimination gays and lesbians were faced with. He read the news and he'd seen movies with gay characters. So he knew about the sorts of things that could happen. Unpleasant social dynamics and whatnot. He deplored it. He was an intelligent, modern man, permissive within reason, and could see no good cause for an endorsement from a powerful ally like himself to be brushed off so ungratefully. The opinions of people like himself were what shaped the public discourse, not that he took it for granted, and he expected, although not in an arrogant way, a certain quality of attention to be paid to his views on matters like this. The only reason he could understand for her muted response to his declaration of support was that she failed to comprehend the significance of it, And why should she fail to comprehend it? A real lesbian would comprehend it, that was for sure. And so the most likely explanation was that she'd lied to him. For a moment, his indignant rage spilled over, and he grimaced horribly at the back of her mousy head. And as it happened, there was a great crack in the sky. Peter flinched and cowered, and when he was able to straighten his head again and peer out the window, everything was normal once more. The sky was blue. The sun shone, a rambling handful of gum leaves ducked and darted through the breeze. What was that? What happened? Peter stammered. Pretty Ricky beamed across the handbrake at him. Couldn't say, he started conversationally. Though odds are on, it's one of the vandals from town. In the rearview mirror, Jackie gestured casually over her shoulder without saying a word. Peter saw, receding into the distance, a thick, spiralling black cloud that swirled and darted like no cloud Peter had ever seen. It might have been only ten metres above the ground. Oh, the bats, Peter moaned, and pretty Ricky ignored him and pressed on. All sorts getting around town at the minute, he remarked, vandalising and fighting and stealing cars, doing graffiti, taking council property, ceremonies in the park, drinking in public, smoking drugs. He rattled the list off entirely casually. All the shops are closed, most people have moved into caves, they say it's the biggest crime wave we've ever had. Peter closed his eyes in exasperation. The car bumped and rattled along the highway for another 15 minutes before winding through a roundabout and onto a quiet suburban street. 
At the next corner, spikes lay across the road. An armor guard truck lay on its side across both lanes. Pretty Ricky drew up to the curb. He turned the key in the ignition. In the merciful silence, Pretty Ricky looked at Peter and Jackie through his purple glasses and said, Well, I can't take you any further. It's not safe. I'll have to say goodbye to you here. Thank, Thank you, you Pretty, Pretty Ricky, Ricky, they replied apprehensively, clutching their bags tightly as the truck U-turned across the street. It trundled back into the roundabout and away out of sight. They were quiet a moment as they contemplated the paths that had led them to this moment in this place. It had been hard to believe what Pretty Ricky had just told them. He had a loose, unhinged passion that seemed it could only be a product of deeply held conspiracy theories. The overturned truck had given his words a little more credence, but now, standing out in the warm sunshine, bees droning in a nearby hedge and a country quiet hanging in the air, the nearly apocalyptic picture he'd painted seemed insane. Jackie clutched her bag full of money and seethed with impatience at the short distance that now lay between her and Leanne who was morphing by the minute into the manifestation of the idyllic rural future that she was now certain she needed if she was to be happy. And Peter shook his head with benign bemusement at the series of improbable stimuli which had affected his journey in surprising and exciting ways, although he didn't think of it in those terms. Instead, he turned to Jackie and said, Wow, uh, let's go. It was a hazy morning in Albury. At the top of a gentle hill that spread out over several kilometres into a dense suburban basin with rows and rows of red-roofed houses, they could see low cloud or perhaps smoke rolling in slightly. The air was beginning to warm already as the sun radiated heat off the pavement. Somewhere in this town was Leanne, and as soon as Jackie found the post office, she could look up how to get to her house. They made their way down wide streets with high-walled gardens, lined with generous curbs and faintly yellowing trees that one could tell at a glance had been tended by a 70-year-old man whose faded checked shirt tucked in at the waist suggested retired schoolteacher. Nearly everybody who lived in this part of town was 60 or 70. Most of them were retired schoolteachers, if they weren't retired university academics. Some of them had worked in professions in the city, they all wore natural fibres and implied in every word and gesture enormous insurance policies. Their patio furniture was high-end. Peter and Jackie plodded townward, turning where they could towards where the buildings grew taller and more civic. They approached each corner gingerly to begin with, in anticipation of marauding youths exploiting the forewarned lawlessness. But as each blandly amicable street presented itself, they forgot a little more. Soon enough, they'd forgotten it completely. They began to navigate more boldly and less defensively. They skirted gradually away from the bland 90s-built Federation-style homes towards low-lying single-level glass-fronted retail outlets and passed them again towards the splashes of planned flora and red brick they glimpsed as they stepped out into the road in reconnaissance. That's where they'd find the post office, Jackie supposed, perhaps near a fountain and a town hall. And when they got there, she could flick through a copy of the Gregories and find the street Leanne was on 
and from there it'd be a simple matter of getting there, and the whole exhausting ordeal would be over. Leanne would have food and a couch, and maybe a couple of Nurofen Plus and a cold beer with which to regain a little of her strength. But as Peter and Jackie trudged through the streets, the corners began to look suspiciously like corners they'd already passed. The shops seemed too familiar. A sports girl, a Ray White, a Gloria Jeans. Here a newsagent advertising the border mail, there a Chinese restaurant. As they passed through the canyon between two beige, windowless, monolithic structures labelled Target and Kmart, they questioned their path and looped back around again. They passed Fernwood, Bing Lee, Terry White and Specsavers, and as they turned down another maple-lined avenue bordered by red paver sidewalks and divided down the centre by bollards, they wondered, hadn't they passed by these shops in this order just a few minutes ago? And stranger still, where was everybody? The thought hit Jackie like a thunderbolt. There was nobody in the shops or the street. There were cars, but they were parked and empty. They hadn't seen another living soul since Pretty Ricky left them, and they were no closer to the town centre. Peter, she croaked, where is everybody? But Peter's only suggestion was an awkward hand pointed to the end of the street and waved vaguely, so they followed it a little further, then turned and followed that street a little further. When they reached the end of that street, they turned once more, then walked and turned again, then walked and turned and walked and turned. At last they arrived at a street corner where every street before them was impossibly familiar. In front of them lay the street down which they had just walked, and behind them the street that had led them to where they were. To their left and right were streets that were perfectly identical, both to one another and to the streets before and behind them with neatly paved footpaths from which small trees burst forth at regular intervals punctuating one-hour parking bays. The awnings were neat and generous and the shop fronts modest. There were red and white ATMs that poked out and the occasional flourish of tile and gable as a break in the shop fronts opened into a humble arcade or plaza. There were bike racks and street signs and flower beds, each one uniform and regularly spaced and Peter and Jackie surveyed them all in dumbfounded amazement and a dawning terror. As the horrid spectre of small-town purgatory reached its apogee, there was a sudden commotion. A squealing of tyres and the roar of an engine erupted from just up the block, and a moment later a dirt bike blew around the corner in a wide arc, smoke billowing from its wheels. It raced down the middle of the street towards them. It was ridden by a man who looked no older than 23 or 24, he wore a white singlet and jeans that were caked in the blood running from his nose and mouth. As he sped towards them, Jackie noticed his white knuckle grip of the bike's handlebars also clasped a huge sugarcane knife. And as he drew near them, he began to yell wildly. Out of the way, you fuckers! Get out of the way, dog shit city fuckers! Fuck you! Move! Fuck yourselves! Get out! Fuck you! They stared slack-jawed as he bore down on them, screaming and bleeding and shaking with exertion, until suddenly there was a loud crack, and he stretched an arm loosely out, bowed his head and flopped. His hips disengaged from the seat liquidly, lazily, like they were in slow motion, and he hit the ground with the muted smash of a wet branch being torn from a tree. The bike was going at such pace that it skittered wildly for a moment, then mounted the footpath on the far side of the street to Peter and Jackie and crashed through the front window of a bridal store. 
The man lay motionless on the road, an enormous bloodstain stretched out behind him. Peter and Jackie stared at his body, aghast. It was a broken heap now, lumpy and indistinguishable, one greying asic by what might have been a head. It twitched for a few moments, and as the twitching subsided and was still, they became aware of a moving presence on the street. A hundred metres away, maybe less, a white ute growled slowly towards them. It had barbed wire wrapped around its bull bar, and in its tray stood a man with a bandana around his mouth and reflective Oakley sunglasses over his eyes. In one hand, he held a megaphone. A rifle was slung over his shoulder. They watched as he raised the megaphone to his lips and spoke. Attention, citizens. Are you in need of assistance? Jackie cupped her hands over her mouth and yelled. No! The ute continued to crawl towards them. Are you hurt? The man asked. No! Jackie yelled back. We're not hurt! Are you criminals? The man demanded through the megaphone. Peter and Jackie looked at one another. There was obviously no point in confessing to the armed vigilante in the fortified vehicle that, in the eyes of the law, they very much were criminals. You're taking a long time to answer! The man reported, a note of irritation in his voice. We're not criminals! Jackie yelled. Then please return to your home! He droned. The crime wave is still in effect. It's not safe to be on the street. We only just got to town! Jackie improvised. We had to walk in. Our car broke down up the highway. We don't have anywhere to stay at the moment. Could you give us safe passage? She tried. Through the crime wave? At that, the man slapped the top of the ute sharply twice. The vehicle stopped. He raised his rifle and squinted down the barrel at them. That's a pretty suspicious story. He called out. But he'd had to put the megaphone down to aim the gun. Without it, Peter and Jackie could barely hear him. We can barely hear you, Peter called out, and the man reached down and tapped on the driver's side window. It rolled down and a skinny teenage boy with sandy hair and freckles leaned out. The man passed him the megaphone. Dad says that's a pretty suspicious story, the boy shouted into the megaphone. There was a blast of feedback. Tell your dad we're not criminals, we're just wayfaring strangers in need of a little country kindness. Tell him we need to find the post office. Jackie continued. There was a pause and then another blare of the megaphone. Uh, Dad says you can talk straight to him. He can hear you. Something the man had said nagged at Peter's interest. What do you mean the crime wave's still on? He called out. There was another long pause as the boy and his father conferred. Peter and Jackie watched as a series of animated gesticulations flared and subsided, and then at long last the megaphone returned to the boy's mouth. We don't know whether to believe you, he said. Everyone's heard of the crime wave. It's the biggest crime wave we've ever had. A whole lot of lawbreakers are out on the streets. The cops can't keep up. Was that man a lawbreaker? Jackie called out. The man you shot? Yes, the boy replied. He was an outlaw. He committed heaps of crimes. Me and Dad are helping the police. Dad says we'll be rich for shooting that guy. He was a wanted murderer. The boy's father leant down to whisper something. And he looted the chemist as well. Anyway, the boy continued. Dad says we're vigilantes. And if you guys are lawbreakers as well, we're going to shoot you right here. Please don't, Jackie shouted back towards the ute. 
We're good people and we don't want to get shot. We could give you money to afford more supplies. You could use it to keep being vigilantes. How much money? The boy asked. Jackie tried to mentally picture the contents of the bag again and how much she could give these murderous hick weirdos to placate them and still have enough for her new life in Albury with Leanne, where she would need her own flat for a little while until they'd established a rhythm and maybe a shitbox car and enough cash for expenses until she could get back on her feet. The notes, she recalled, were bundles of 20s and 50s, some tens, but almost certainly into the tens of thousands. I can give you a thousand dollars. Jackie replied, and the kid gunned the engine. The ute began to creep forward again. Dad says only criminals would have that much cash. The boy smirked into the megaphone. He says normal people have their money in the bank. He's going to shoot you and we'll turn the money over to the police. A great guttural sob escaped Peter's throat and he slumped to his knees and buried his face in his hands. As he did, a white four-wheel drive, overloaded with furniture and appliances tied to the roof, careened from an alleyway and T-boned the ute. The vigilante father flew out of the tray as the vehicle was sent skidding. An eight-burner barbecue dislodged from the roof of the four-wheel drive and sailed through the front window of the LJ hooker, and there was a deafening pop as the cap busted off a propane gas bottle. The driver pushed open his door and staggered out onto the street. His eyes were red, and in one hand he held a half-empty magnum-sized bottle of Verve Clicquot. He took a wobbly step towards Peter and Jackie, and a portable air conditioning unit slipped on its casters and rolled off the top of the car and onto his head like it was a rock and he was Piggy in Lord of the Flies. He fell heavily to the ground and was still. On the other side of the road, a posse of teens, dressed elegantly in looted cashmere sweaters and linen slacks from the country road outlet, dragged a trolley of tools along the sidewalk, tossing hammers and wrenches into the glass shop fronts. They swore and slobbered on each other and screamed enthusiastically along to the music coming out of a portable Bluetooth speaker. Floating over the rooftops came a screaming and a wet cracking sound of mysterious and unsettling origin. A beaten up Toyota Camry with two smashed in headlights screeched to a halt in a no stopping zone. Peter and Jackie looked on in horror as another loud pop emanated from within the LJ hooker and they saw the flickering orange light of flames building inside. Peter grabbed Jackie's arm in horror and as they staggered madly looking for respite, a tiny ugly man with thick black hair ran over and shoved them hard. They reeled a few steps, too shocked to really object, and a giant with an enormous dent in his skull ambled a wheelbarrow over to the spot on which they'd been standing. The tiny man screamed, and the giant pulled a jackhammer from the wheelbarrow and began to drill down into the footpath. Cement and gravel flew into the air, and the tiny man giggled gleefully as he caught it all in a garbage bag. As the flying cement gave way to dirt, he tied the bag at the top and produced another one. The giant placed the jackhammer back in his wheelbarrow and pulled on a pair of thick black rubber gloves. He reached into the hole and, grunting mightily, pulled out a great mess of copper wiring and fibre optic cable. Arm over arm he pulled, drawing several hundred metres worth of copper and wiring from the ground and then at last took a machete from the wheelbarrow and severed it. He dumped it in the tiny man's waiting garbage bag. They removed bricks, piping and soil, and then, to Peter and Jackie's incredulous stares, the giant reached delicately into the hole with a pair of long barbecue tongs and removed a single shining ruby the size of a ping-pong ball. He placed it tenderly in a foam-lined briefcase the tiny man now held. 
He waited patiently as the tiny man clicked the latches, vaulted into the wheelbarrow and slapped the side. The giant began to push him up the street. They had only a moment to wheeze with anxiety when from around the block came a wailing of sirens and Peter and Jackie flattened themselves against the side of a building as they waited with horror to see what it would bring. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you'd like to support it, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash maxlaverne and please send me a message. You can DM me on Twitter, prawn underscore meat. I love it when people get in touch about The Horse and the Rider uh, and thank you uh, in particular this week to Twitter user Bone Turds who says, the 12 episodes are great and I hope Adnan gets the access to the justice system he deserves one day. Please rate and review this podcast if you can, and if you haven't already, check out my substack, infinitegossip.substack.com. It's a whole bunch of short stories and poems, and I send out more all the time. And finally, if you know anyone who's into heroes, make sure you tell them about this podcast, because next week in episode 14, Peter and Jackie are greeted as heroes in a town that sorely needs some. So it's a great time to pull on a cape, by which I mean listen to this podcast. But I think they'd get that.